I'm Anton Hellman. And I'm Teresa Chan. And this is the, the Journal, Journal Jam, Jam Podcast. Podcast, where we blend interviews with leading researchers of important emergency medicine journal articles with the Annals of Emergency Medicine and Academic Life in Emergency Medicine Joint Global Emergency Medicine Journal Club. And the best of crowdsourced social media-based opinions of emergency medicine providers from around the world. In this month's Journal Jam podcast, we're going to be talking about outpatient management of pneumothoraces. The paper that we'll be talking about in particular is entitled Ambulatory Management of Large Spontaneous Pneumothoraces with Pigtail Catheters. And this is a study out of France with the lead author, Fanny Voisin. Now, it makes sense that the treatment of primary spontaneous pneumothorax would lend itself well to ambulatory management since patients are usually young and otherwise healthy, and the mortality and morbidity from these air leaks are really very low. Most patients would rather be managed as an outpatient rather than admitted to hospital, and sending home these patients would probably end up saving the system resource and money. So Anton, I think that one of the things that we know for sure is that for asymptomatic patients who have a small pneumothorax, we know what to do with those. The British Thoracic Society, the American College of Chest Physicians, and their guidelines have talked about how small pneumothoraces that have a measurement of less than two to three centimeters from the lung margin can be treated conservatively. That is, we can take a chest x-ray, we can arrange prompt follow-up, we can repeat the chest x-ray, make sure it's not getting worse, and then just make sure that the patient eventually resolves this pneumothorax. And I think that's pretty clear in the literature. What's not clear is what to do with bigger ones. So those are the small asymptomatic pneumothoraces, and those are the easy ones where we don't have to do anything invasive unless they get worse. So what about these significantly symptomatic small ones and the bigger ones? What are the options for treating these? Yeah, so I think by reviewing the literature, there's about three choices that we have for managing these. The British prefer the aspiration technique. That is that you aspirate as much of the air as you can, and then you shoot a repeat chest x-ray, and then you follow them up. And the Canadians have been doing a technique similar to the one described in this paper, which is a small bore chest tube with a Heimlich valve at the end that allows for the air to exit over time. And then a lot of surgeons, both in Canada and the U.S., especially on the blog, had stated that they do actually still prefer large bore chest tubes in the end. So those are three options. Okay. So let's get into a little bit of what the background literature says about some of these options, and in particular, this small bore chest tube option. What do they say about complication rates, infection rates, and that sort of thing? Yeah, so a UK study with uh, Benton et al. in 2009 showed when you compare small bore, i.e. 6 to 12 French catheters, to large bore catheters, there are 20 to 32 French. Retrospectively, they found that there was similar success in terms of resolution, but that the large bore chest tube group had higher complication rates and higher infection rates. Meanwhile, in Canada, a similar study that was also retrospective has shown that spontaneous pneumothoraces receiving a eight French small bore catheter with a Heimlich valve showed similar success rates to Benton's study. And that's in a study by Hassani and et al. in 2009. In this study, they also noted that 81% of their patients were able to be discharged directly from the ED. And in another study in Japan, they found that 98% of their patients could be discharged from the ED. 
So I think that the literature kind of shows that there definitely is this option out there for small bore chest tubes. So what does this new study from France that we're going to be talking about add to the current body of literature? So I don't want to have too many spoilers here. So spoiler alert, and Seth is going to go into this in a moment to explain a little bit more. But I think that what this study really adds is the question of whether or not we really need to restrict our use of these small bore chest tubes to only those with spontaneous pneumothoraces, or if we can use them in other cases as well. I think it's important to emphasize in this study that there were both primary spontaneous pneumothoraces as well as secondary traumatic pneumothoraces. Yeah, and so I think that that's where this paper is a bit of a game changer. So let's hear Seth's description of this study. So this is one of the newest papers on some of the less aggressive management of pneumothoraces in emergency department papers. What Dr. Juno did with his co-authors was they, they talked about their four-year experience at the University of Rennes 1 in France, where they treated both primary and secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces who presented to the ED. These were large pneumothoraces, so basically about a two to three centimeter margin around the outside. There were 110 primary pneumothoraces and 22 secondary pneumothoraces, which we defined as having some underlying lung disease, pretty much COPD. There had been some previous experience reported uh, from some other centers, which were pretty much only in primary pneumothoraces. And then what else they did was put in pigtail catheters. They're uh, respirologists, what we call pulmonologists here, who place pigtail catheters in the traditional mid-clopicular line, second to third intercostal space. And then the other thing that was novel was the majority of these patients, 103 out of the 132, were managed as outpatients. These patients were sent home with a pigtail catheter in their chest with a Heimlich valve, a one-way valve, and then followed up every two days. And then when possible, the pigtail catheter is taken out. There's an 83% success rate where the rest of the patients needed something more invasive, usually a vas with pleurodesis, and a 26% one-year recurrence rate. So overall, this is a pretty good study. It was an observational study where everybody was getting the same intervention for the most part, but showed that basically there's a pretty good success rate of managing people with some hardware, with a pigtail catheter, but not a large chest tube, and not an admission for the most part. So at this point, I'd like to introduce all the players in this Google Hangout. You've just heard from Seth Truger, who's from the University of Chicago and is the assistant social media editor of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. We'll have Dr. Stéphane Junot from the University of Rennes 1 in France, Dr. Heather Murray from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, and Michelle Lin from UC San Francisco, the chief editor of Academic Life and Emergency Medicine blog. So I think of note, one of the things we wanted to highlight is that this is still yet another observational study. I think so far, most of the literature has been retrospective studies. So this is definitely a step in the right direction in terms of proving whether or not this is the best way to go, right? So this is a prospective study, but still observational. And observational studies are sort of the lowest on the totem pole in terms of the quality of evidence. Yeah, so in the hierarchy, I think it's rated a little bit lower because it doesn't mitigate bias in the same way by using randomization techniques. Knowing the three techniques that we have, aspiration, small bore, large bore, chest tubes, why not just aspirate these pneumothoraces and then send people on their way? Why leave a piece of hardware in them at all? I think Heather really phrases this well and poses this question to Dr. Juno. so let's listen to what she has to ask and say. 
I'm wondering about the use of aspiration in some of these patients. The British Thoracic Society had put guidelines out in 2010, which had aspiration for large spontaneous pneumothoraces as the first intervention. And I'm wondering if aspiration is used in your center and why you didn't have that as part of your protocol or why your particular hospital hasn't gone down that road. Actually, we didn't use aspiration for two reasons. The first one was it seems easier to set the catheter and send back home the patient quite immediately because the waiting was less than two hours before going home and without any control, no X-ray. And uh, the second one, one, if you have to aspirate because you can set the catheter and aspirate the pneumothorax, what is uh, recommended in the uh, BTS guidelines is to control, check again the chest X-ray. This is between four to six hours later. And so it, it delayed the discharge of the patient. So it seems easier to put a catheter for 100% of the patient and send them back home and see them two, two days later. And can I follow up on that? Your paper had said that the safety of sending someone home with a chest tube was felt to be better than the safety of sending home someone home after an aspiration. And I'm wondering about the safety improvement is with a chest tube in versus an aspiration. If you perform the aspiration, and even if you control the chest X-ray for six hours after and you say everything is fine in the few hours later or even one day after the pneumothorax can come back and be more dangerous than letting the one-way valve with the, the catheter. I see. So it, it sounds like you're worried about kind of more the delayed recurrence of the pneumothorax from the aspiration that may go unnoticed by patients. I think that the studies I was looking at is kind of variable about what this recurrence rate might be. Um, so it would be interesting. I think on the blog we had mentioned about, well, it would be interesting to do a three-arm study to look at exactly this head-to-head with pigtails. So I just want to clarify here what Dr. Junot is saying, that at their shop, they're putting in the Heimlich valve and then sending home patients within two hours without any chest x-ray. Is that right? Yeah. So his protocol is unique, I think, in this way. And I think that it sped up their time to discharge because what they did was they troubleshot and made sure the Heimlich valve was working. And as long as that was working and the patient knew how to work it and knew what the danger signs were, then they're off to the races they were. I guess what they're assuming there is that when they see the Heimlich valve fluttering, that it's got to be in the right place, it's got to be working, and so there's no need for a chest x-ray. Yeah. And I think that what a lot of us do right now is that most people in North America, I think, repeat a chest x-ray after the placement even of a pigtail catheter with Heimlich valve because they want to make sure it's in the right spot. And I think that... There's variable practice as to how many hours you need to observe the patient between the time you place the pigtail and when you discharge them home. At your shop, Anton, how long do you wait between placement of a tube and discharge home? Yeah, Teresa, I know in my shop, we keep patients around for about four to six hours. And during that time, some of the docs uh, put the patients on wall suction. So it's kind of a modified Heimlich valve plus aspiration. And then they repeat the x-ray at four to six hours if it's good they go home. Is that what you guys do at your shop? Um, so at my shop, I think we put the valve in, we make sure it's working, we make sure it's in place with the chest x-ray. And then there's variable practice as to how long people are observed for. But by and large, I've seen anywhere between two to four hours, depending on the ease of getting the chest x-ray. 
Dr. Truger is now going to summarize some of the comments and questions that were posted on the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine blog. A little bit of background, I'm going to summarize some of the comments we got. It fell into essentially four different groups. First is the big question that I think a lot of people had was follow-up. Here, you know, these patients all had follow-up every two days, so day two, day four, day six, and only 11 patients, I think, were lost to follow-up, which is a really good really good follow-up. And I don't think a lot of us, especially in big urban centers in the States, can guarantee that kind of follow-up. So there's some discussion about, do you need to work with the respirologist or pulmonologist to have a follow-up clinic? Are we going to have these patients come back to the ED? And that's just from the institutional side. And then from the patient side, you know, we've all seen patients who uh, have stitches that stay in for a couple of weeks. And are the patients going to be trusted to be able to come back? Some of the other issues were the failure rates. You guys reported a 26% recurrence at one year, and I think it was about a 17% failure rate initially. One of the commenters, another chest surgeon, mentioned like a 50% recurrence rate four years, which might be the same curve. Heather already mentioned that the, uh, there was a lot of discussion about aspiration versus placing these. That's where some of the other similar studies are looked at. And then lastly, there, there was a lot of discussion about who's placing these pigtails, whether it's the emergency physician, the pulmonologist, or an interventional pulmonologist, or the chest surgeons. Did you want to address any of these comments? Yes, I think I will begin with the last one about the, who said the, the catheter. Actually, the, this study published in the, in the annals was performed in the Lorient Hospital because they got the catheter before our own center. And uh, so we have done the same protocol in our center with a, with a different technique, actually, because we don't have any pulmonologists on call, so they are not here at night, and pneumothorax uh, occur uh, day and night. And so at the moment, in our center, this is uh, the emergency physicians who set the catheter, and uh, the pulmonologists see them every two days after. And it's working quite well with a, a form, a specific form with, with, with fax, and the uh, pulmonologist in charge for the day uh, just have to uh, schedule the, the appointment for the outpatient clinic. There is good things and bad things about this. And we talked with the pulmonary physician from Lorient because uh, there are five at the moment, and they still setting all the catheters for pneumothorax at their centers. And they said that there are only five physicians to set the catheter. So they've got a great experience with it, with no complication, as mentioned in the paper. So in their center, it's working. In our center, we couldn't do that. And we are doing with the emergency physician. And every emergency physician know how to put a central venous line and uh, use a cell danger technique. So is about to catheter. And we didn't have any patient lost a follow-up before extracting the catheter. Dr. John Foote on the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine blog had a comment about where to place the catheter. He's the author of a previous study on outpatient management of pneumothoraces. And Dr. Foote said that the second intercostal space at the midclavicular line is an awkward landmark because it means going through the upper pectoralis muscle. It also leaves a more noticeable scar than the fifth interspace at the mid-axillary line, which we've been doing in Canada for years. I think one of the big concerns to consider is also the comfort for the patient. So having something sticking 90 degrees out of your chest wall in the second interspace is very uncomfortable and actually is probably prone to kinking because of the way we wear clothes and such. Having 
a linear alignment uh, into an area that is actually shielded underneath your arm is probably a better, more convenient place for your patient as well. So I think patient preference wise, it's probably better. Yeah. And if you get it right in the fifth intercostal space in the anterior axillary line, you're actually inserting it between two major muscle groups, uh, the latissimus dorsi and the pec major, rather than right through a major muscle group. I think what is interesting that you bring up is that if we were to implement something like this at our shop, we have to pay a special attention to uh, the competencies of the trainees that we might have to ensure some consistency and quality of the procedural placement. That being said, I think, uh, at least in the States, U.S. EM residents are very competent with chest tube procedures, and that is a very standard practice. So hopefully it's very translatable. I think most people would put it you know, in the mid-axillary line, fourth to fifth intercostal space. And I think if we were to shift it over to more of the anterior version, it would require some training, at least in the States, because that sounds like that is your primary approach, correct? Yes. Yeah, so there's a little bit of variance with that. Let's skip over to the, the third question, which is, I don't know about you, but I love movies. And on the DVDs, they have a, a second track, which is the director's cut behind the scenes. And uh, and I would love to hear from Stefan anything that didn't show up on the paper that, that you would care to share with the audience? I know that there is two uh, specific cases which were more than just from a medical point of view. One of the patients was the best man for a wedding, and he got a pneumothorax just a few days before the wedding, and he was able to go to the wedding because of this kind of management. Another patient was having this pneumothorax just the day before exams, and we set the catheter and he was able to go to the to the exam and, and to perform it instead of being admitted in the hospital with a chest tube. And so that, that's some little benefits which are not uh, medical, but still very uh, interesting for the patients. Oh, those are great stories. I think many times when we look at these studies, it's all about the science, but we need to factor in, I think, patient convenience, cost effectiveness, you know, missing life events. How do you quantify that? Uh, and, and these are fascinating stories to help us ground us in these studies in, in some sort of reality. So th- thanks for sharing those stories. So I think sometimes when we're in journal club and we're thinking and waxing philosophical about EBM type papers, we can forget the patient. And in fact, in most of these, they're just another number and another part of a percentage. I think that what Dr. Juno's story really highlights is the patient involvement and the impact on a patient's life that these techniques can have. I think that he raises a really good point that sometimes there's real life and you need to make sure that you can allow your patient to experience it. Just like Dr. Himmel says in his EBM lecture, EBM is not just statistics. It's the best available evidence plus the physician's experience plus the patient's values. So never forget those patient's values. Next, Dr. Janot is going to talk about the value of protocols and checklists in this study, and we'll get into a discussion on why these are important for doing the procedure, for patient instructions, and for follow-up. With all the little defects and the problem we, we have encountered, we have performed a checklist with a, a specific form to be filled by the physician or the nurses in charge of the patient just before letting the patient go home with checking of the valves, a one-way valve in the right uh, way, checking the all the tubes were not kinked and all this kind of stuff. So there is a 10 to 
12 little box to, to be filled and to be sure that everything is fine. So with this kind of little form to be sure that there is appointment with the pulmonary physician and this checklist before releasing the patient, I think that this management is quite implementable in different places. So like with any procedure, just like we, we do with central lines, like we do with intubations, I think that the era of the checklist is here. And to have standard operating procedures for even simple procedures like this are important to ensure patient safety. Yeah, and not only that, but having standard protocols for the follow-up, I think, are really important too. I know at our shop, we don't have a specific protocol. And every time the patient comes back to our emergency department where our emergency physicians are following them up, every two days or sometimes every day, it's highly variable what that follow-up will be. And every physician will do something different in terms of repeating the x-ray and when they're going to follow up next. So I think a protocol where everyone's on the same page can be very helpful and lead to better safety for the patient. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of where the final step of knowledge translation needs to be, right? It's how EBM turns into a hospital-wide policy that all the players can get behind. And so I think I was really excited for this particular blog post and this particular global journal club to see actually the advent of thoracic surgeons to come and comment with us on this. Because I think by engaging that population, we can have a better, more robust discussion about what it is that we should do as a healthcare system rather than individuals. Absolutely. And so when our listeners go back to their shops, they should be speaking with their specialists and everyone together should come up with a protocol. We'll have some examples of protocols for you that you can take to your shop and modify on the EM Cases blog post. Dr. Genot is now going to explain why in his study it wasn't necessary to do a chest x-ray after placing the small bore catheter. It's not necessary to perform a chest x-ray after putting the catheter. And I know that it was with the reviewer and with some of colleagues, sometimes they prefer to perform the chest X-ray. We don't think that it's necessary, but we know that even now in the emergency uh, department, it's performed around one third to half of the patients. This is reassuring for the physician, I think. Stefan, you just mentioned the, the follow-up chest X-ray. I think you're probably right and your experience has shown that it's really safe to manage these new pigtails without a chest X-ray confirming placement. It just seems like that would be a, a very uphill battle in North America to get people to discharge somebody with new hardware in the chest without a chest X-ray. It's hard enough to convince people that ultrasound is sufficient for pneumothorax and the patients were worried about. The main point not doing the chest X-ray is uh, because when everything is set with the plast on it and, and you just check and see that the valve is moving with the respiration, you know that you're in place. And the second point is uh, because... When you just put the catheter, actually, the, the lung is not re-expanding straight away. And so sometimes the physician want to say, well, this is a two in the morning. I will wait eight to, to let the patient go back home and perhaps do another chest X-ray. And it's to avoid also this kind of, uh, of things. And it's not necessary. We're now going to go on to a discussion about the complications of small bore catheters with Heimlich valves. And in particular, Dr. Murray is going to ask about kinking probably the most worrisome complication. I just wanted to ask about, there were two patients in your series that had the catheter kink. You know, to me, that would be the most worrisome complication is occlusion of the tube with still a residual pneumothorax and possibly a non-healing or non-closing bleb. I wonder what your thoughts are about potential other complications or issues related to kinking. 
because of all these little problems, we, at the moment, for a patient coming for a primary pneumothorax, we've got uh, several forms. The checklist before letting the patient go back home to be performed by the nurses or the physician. We already talked about that. There is the form for the appointment, which is a fax internal of our hospital. And the last form is uh, about all this kind of thing. We, we give this form to the patient and there is several lines. And one of them is just to check if the valve is moving with the respiration. And uh, when there is a father or the wife of the patient, she can check it and have a look of it to be sure that there is no kinking of the catheter and she can look at it. And when you put the, the plaster on the tube, just to be sure that you can see the, the tube of the catheter and check it. And uh, if there is liquid, because we, we have seen that in the catheter, just to be sure that the patient is not blocking uh, the valve to avoid the liquid to, to spill. Because we've got one patient who put some uh, plastic band, adhesive band on the valve to avoid the leaking. So one of the really cool things I thought about this study was the amount of care they took to clarify the return instructions for the patient. It sounds like they developed a whole patient handout and went through the whole protocol and the safety checklist on discharge. I think that if there's one thing to learn from this study is to empower the patient as to what complications to look for and when to come back in. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I think it's important to know also that the most common complication in these small bore catheters is dislodgement. As high as one in five, one in four people will actually have that complication. And so I can't overemphasize the importance of suturing in the catheter securely and testing it with a good tug to make sure that it's not going to get dislodged. And the other part of it, too, is just to make sure that the patient really knows to head back in if it does dislodge. So, Teresa, can you put this study in context of the literature in terms of the outcomes and the recurrence rates for small bore chest tubes and Heimlich valves in spontaneous pneumothoraces? So, Anton, I think that it's really great that recently there's been a very good systematic review that came out of Thorax that answers that exact question. And so they looked at a systematic review of Heimlich valve management for pneumothoraces, and they found that there was a recurrence rate of about 10 to 20%. And they also found that in 10% of patients, they went on to surgery, which is consistent with the studies that we've kind of been discussing, which ranged between 86 to 94% success rates in terms of the outcomes they were measuring. There are some outlier studies, such as one from Singapore and one from Taiwan, that had lower success rates. So I think this really kind of goes to show you that sometimes it's the system of care and the performance of the individual doctors that may affect the success and failures that you have. So I think it's really important to think about how you set up your system and how you can really augment patient care by setting up the whole spectrum from everywhere from training your doctors all the way through to making sure that there's robust follow-up. Teresa, some docs at my shop will put the patients on supplemental O2, even if they're satting normally, to help resolve the pneumothorax faster. Do you think there's any role for using supplemental O2 for those patients, either with asymptomatic small pneumothoraces or patients that you've put a Heimlich valve in who have symptomatic small pneumothoraces or bigger pneumothoraces? Is there any value in keeping them in your emergency department to give them supplemental O2? I think the supplemental O2 has made me feel better in the past, but at the same time, the evidence isn't really strong. And so a best bets review that was updated in 2010 kind of reviewed and found there was one study 
that had 10 patients in it that looked at the resolution of symptoms. And they found that the supplemental O2 that they supplied needed to be on for like 9 to 38 hours in order to make a difference. And that's really not the amount of time that we're talking about when we're observing them in the ER. So if we're going to be watching our patients and we're going to be giving some oxygen, I'm not sure there's that much of a significant increase in value for the patient. So suffice to say that you shouldn't keep patients in your emergency department any longer than they need to just for oxygen. But while they're in your ED, you might as well slap some oxygen on their face. I think that's a practical solution to the splitting of the difference there. But I, I, I honestly am not convinced by the evidence. I don't think there's strong evidence to compel me to use the oxygen at all, especially since the Heimlich valve is probably going to do most of the work for us anyway. Well, let's just wrap up here. And um, maybe you could uh, leave us all with one take-home point you'd like the listeners to, to come away with. And I'll start, start with uh, the star of the day here, Stefan, first. You've got a primary pneumothorax. You put this kind of catheter and sending that home back home and with the same protocol for every patient. And it's an easy way to manage all these patients. So I think the take-home message is it's easy, the same way for all the patients. For the secondary, we don't have enough uh, patient to be sure that it's really safe and we're working on it at the moment. But clearly for the primary, it's, it's really easy and, and it's working. I think you, know, you guys have done great work. I think right now we've got some pretty good data from a couple of different case series that pigtail placement is a really safe way to manage simple pneumothoraces. We've got some good other data that aspiration works pretty well. We know chest tubes worked well, but are probably more invasive and require more admission than we want. It would be great to have a comparison study going forward. So hopefully you're working toward that. And Jerry Hoffman and Rick Bucata talked about the Misango paper at ASAP a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Jerry Hoffman put it really well that right now we know we can manage pneumothoraces pretty much. Whatever you do, you'll get about an 80% success rate. So now that we know we can do it uh, in a couple of different safe ways, the key, I think, is going to be the initial management is easy. Put a drain in, put a pigtail catheter in, do what you can to get the patient home, aspirate it if that's what you can do at your shop and don't have anything else. Um, the key is going to be the follow-up. Work with the pulmonologist and respirologist to get that follow-up and talk to the patients so they know what to look out for and so that they're not putting tape over it or anything like that. And here's Heather Murray with her take-home message. To follow up with Seth, we're looking forward to seeing some kind of comparison study. I know that a number of Canadian centers are doing this, putting pigtail catheters in and discharging patients for home follow-up. And I think because the success first-pass outcome is going to be comparable across all of these different therapies, I think the patient-oriented outcomes are probably going to be the thing that is most important for us to track satisfaction, pain, ease, convenience, all those kinds of things are probably going to be the thing that seals the deal. And now Michelle Lynn's conclusions. I think it's about whether this technique is generalizable to your setting and to your patients. But it's always nice to know different options that are available now. It's not chest tube is not the only answer that's potentially on the horizon. So, Anjana, at the end of this journal jam, I have to really ask you this burning question I have. Is this study going to change your practice? Well, Teresa, I already use small bore chest tubes with outpatient management for spontaneous pneumothoraces. But we always keep the patient for a few hours after the drain's been placed and repeat the chest x-ray to ensure that some re-expansion has happened as per the guidelines. And then instead of the respirologist or a thoracic surgeon following up, we have the patient come back to RED in the ambulatory area, and they come back every 24 hours to repeat the chest X-ray until there's full re-expansion, and then we pull the catheter. So this study doesn't really change things much for me, 
The fact that they didn't repeat a chest x-ray at all and just ensured that the valve was working properly and sent the patients home right away, that might lead me to consider not keeping the patient around for that long, especially if the emergency department is really busy and I'm sure that the patient has a functioning Heimlich valve. Where I think that RED can improve is to have a detailed protocol for the placement and follow-up as well as patient instruction sheet that's very detailed. The other thing is that for me personally, if I have any doubts about whether or not the patient is re-expanding or any doubts about whether the hardware is working properly or any doubts about persistent air leak, I page the thoracic surgeon on call to ask for their help or for a formal consultation. While on the one hand, outpatient management with a Heimlich valve is only a D recommendation in the British guidelines and all the evidence is based on observational studies rather than RCTs, my group has been doing this for years and more and more evidence is accumulating that it's safe and a reasonable approach and patients and physicians seem to prefer it. I think we'll still need some good RCTs with solid outcomes, health-related quality of life, total days hospitalized, pain scores, and all that sort of stuff to inform our future management of these. But the bottom line for me is that we should probably all be doing this. We just need a bit more data to prove the benefit. And if we're going to do it, we need carefully developed protocols in place to do it right. So I think one of the things that I'm torn with is that I wonder if an RCT is actually ever needed, because I think that the evidence to date is pretty compelling in many ways. Sure, it's observational and some of it's retrospective. But I think that taking into consideration the much higher complication rate of the large bore chest tubes, taking into consideration the effect on patients' lives, the difference in admitting them versus being able to manage them as outpatients and the impairment that they have when they have to be locked up in the hospital, I think it gives me pause to think that maybe this is the way to go. And I think that right now the evidence stands in a way that would compel me that if there's no other good reason why I can't manage it this way, I would use the small bore chest tube with the Heimlich valve. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's Journal Jam. We'd love to hear your comments on the EM Cases blog post for this Journal Jam, as well as on the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine blog post on this topic as well. So until next time, Teresa and I just want to leave you with one important message. Let's keep on jamming on the Journal Jam. Remember, you don't have to nerd out alone. Together, we're smarter. smarter.